Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to the broadcast ministry of Return to the Word with Pastor Mark Fontecchio, advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now, here is pastor and author Mark Fontecchio. Chapter 17 of Revelation showed us the end of the satanic religious system that is referred to as the Great Harlot. But now we're about to see the fall of the political system known as Babylon. And the reason, if you're wondering, the reason that Revelation takes so much time to address each aspect of the future satanic kingdom is because the political, commercial, and religious aspects of this future kingdom are so tightly intertwined that they must be dissected individually. This morning we head to Revelation chapter 18. On the 25th of October in 1859, the steam clipper, the Royal Charter, rounded the island of Anglesey off the coast of Wales. Now, this was supposed to be a night of celebration. This was supposed to be one of these nights where you just celebrated the voyage. See, it was the last evening of the, of the trip of a two-month-long journey from Melbourne to Liverpool. And there was some 500 men, women, and children that were on board, and they were nearly home. And many of them were feeling blessed, very blessed with their fortunes because they'd been in Australia working in the gold fields. Many of the passengers had gold crammed into their pockets, just shoved into their pockets, hidden in their money belts, stuffed into their luggage, and locked up in the strong room. It was a ship of fabulous wealth. There was a lot of money on board. After completing 59 days of a 60-day journey, the passengers were toasting each other at the dining table. But then the day's weather began to shift. Suddenly, it turned murky and the barometer started falling. As the Royal Charter neared Anglesey's rocky cliffs, a terrifying haze kind of overtook the skies of the early evening. And no one knows for sure exactly whether the ship's experienced captain, Thomas Taylor, saw these ominous signs, but eyewitnesses reported that this ship, the battle between the ship and the storm, raged for over 12 hours. And confronted with a decision, 59 days out of Melbourne on a 60-day voyage, when passengers are toasting him at the dining room table, Taylor chose to sail on. And that decision was fatal. The royal charter bashed onto the rocks and all but 41 of its passengers were crushed or drowned. Many were weighted down into the ocean by the gold that they had in their pockets. Revelation 18 this morning confronts us with a scene that kind of reminds me of this. It's the same type of madness, the hunger of greed, men toasting one another in their own success. The merchants of the earth, the shipmasters, sailors, they will see the riches of the earth come to nothing, and they're going to be swallowed up in despair by eternal despair. We start this morning in verse 1 of Revelation 18, and it says, After these things I saw another 
angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul soul, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. Key words to start out chapter 18. Notice how it says in the New King James, after these things, very important words in your understanding of this passage. It's a time marker that separates, it separates this vision from chapter 17. It is a failure to see these differences that leads people to conflate the two chapters and come to an incorrect understanding of the text. Now, this angel, he has great authority and is able to illuminate the earth with his glory. But this does not mean that it is a reference to Christ. The Greek wording tells us this is an angel, another angel. In specific, it's saying in the Greek language, it is another of the same kind as that of chapter 17. This angel has power. This angel will light the earth with his glory, probably telling us he had just come from the very presence of God. This angel will do great work on behalf of God. He will cry out, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. Repetition because it's important. There's a number of exegetical reasons to understand that back in chapter 17, we are dealing with the religious system of Babylon. The woman that rode the beast, the woman that was associated with the political power, but was not the political power itself. And in chapter 18, we are dealing with the political and the economic Babylon, because out of ancient Babylon came the false religions of men, but so did the political power represented in Nebuchadnezzar. This will be a large and prosperous city, the center of political and economic life. And according to verse 2, once the city of Babylon falls just before the second coming of Christ, it will become the habitation of demons, a dwelling place of demons. Notice the wording, a prison for every foul spirit in a cage for every unclean and hated bird. Now, the hated birds are not a reference to ravens or it's not a reference to the birds that likes to frequent your windshield after you wash your car. That's not the reference. It's actually a threefold repetition and description of demons here. Demons, evil spirits, symbolized as a bird that will hover over the fallen city like birds waiting for their prey. Now, the city of Babylon, abandoned to demons, is the divine judgment of God because of the wickedness that we see starting described in verse 3. It says this, For all the nations have drunk of the wine of her wrath, of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. Babylon, in her political power, will have had evil relationships with all the nations described here as fornication. These nations will have been led by the kings of the earth, but it has made the merchants of the earth rich, wealthy. See, the greed of man is going to become like a drug. It will make men rich, but in the end, they are doomed for destruction. The nations are going to completely abandon God. They're headed that way already now, but they will prosper in their wealth. Verse 4 in your text, it says... And I heard another 
voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Now the text tells us that John hears another voice from heaven calling the people of God to get out of Babylon. Reminds me of Jeremiah 51, 45 that says this, referring to Babylon. It says, my people go out of the midst of her and let everyone deliver himself from the fierce anger of the Lord. In Revelation 18, the people told to come out are the faithful believers living in the tribulation. And we are told the people of God will need to come out of that Babylon for two reasons. It says right there in the text, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. Get out of the city that promotes idolatry. Get out of the city that loves violence. The city where the attitude is of self-sufficiency and the love of the easy life that will dominate that time. The believers are told they have nothing to do with the city. The trade and commerce of this city will be accursed, accursed by God. See, Revelation is teaching us an application here. That there is a direct correlation and application in this text. Who you spend your time with influences your walk with Jesus Christ. You think of Abraham. Abraham was called out from his people and his land. God ordered him out of his country in Genesis 12. God separated the Jewish nation from Egypt and warned the people of Israel not to go back. And we Christians in the church today are warned something similar, aren't we? Sure we are. We're commanded to separate ourselves from that which is ungodly. People don't like to hear that in the church today. But we are. We're commanded to separate ourselves from that which is ungodly. Just part of the text from Paul in 2 Corinthians where he says this. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean. He goes on. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. There's principles here for how we live, how we should be living. These principles should guide our lives. It should guide what we watch on TV, what we see online, how we filter all this world into our lives and how we spend our time, what we unite with in this world and who we spend our time with as Christians. And back in Revelation, the second reason the faithful believers of the tribulation will need to come out is so that they do not have the plagues of God inflicted upon them. Now, what are these plagues of God that's being spoken of? Specifically, it is the seven bold judgments of Revelation 16. You see, this, this call for the exodus of God's people from Babylon will come before the seven bowls of wrath in Revelation 16. The sins of Babylon are going to reach heaven. God will remember her iniquities. There's an allusion here to the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 that just as they once used bricks to reach up into the heavens, here the wording is specific. It says that their sins will be glued together, piled on top of one another as bricks in a building up until heaven. Meaning this time around, it's going to be their sins that they pile up. It's going to be their sins that they build up. 
But much like the warning of Matthew 24, where Jesus warned the people living in Jerusalem at the time of the tribulation to flee at the abomination of desolation, here they are told, get out of Babylon to enjoy God's protection. Don't be like Lot's wife, looking back at the city of sin. God is righteous, and he must judge Babylon. I was reading about this little six-year-old girl. Now, keep in mind, she was just six, six years old. And she had a problem because it was coming up on Christmas time and she wanted to do some shopping. But her mom had her phone password protected. She had her phone protected with a fingerprint sensor as well. So this little girl, she was clever. She waited till her mom fell asleep and she used her mother's thumb to unlock the phone. When her mom checked her email later, after she woke up, she was greeted with 13 orders from Amazon. $250 later, this little girl had done all her shopping for Christmas on Amazon. Clever, but it does make me wonder what type of message we're sending to our children, doesn't it? People admit a lot of their sins. People will admit that they have anger problems, pride problems, even lust. But no one ever thinks that they're greedy. As a pastor, I've had people come to me over the years and confess that they struggle with almost every kind of sin. I mean, you wouldn't believe some of the things you hear. But I cannot recall in 23 years of ministry, anyone ever coming up to me and saying, you know what, pastor, I spend too much money on myself. No one ever comes to me and says, I think I'm living above my means. I think that my greedy lust for money or for goods in this world is harming my family, my walk with Christ, or it's harming the people around me. Why is that? Well, I think it's this simple. I think greed hides itself from the victim. It operates in the blindness of your own heart. Which is why the Bible says this in 1 Timothy 6.10. It says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierce themselves through with many sorrows. The love of money can absolutely ruin your walk with Christ. It can ruin all the relationships you have in life, every single one of them. That's the danger. You know, Babylon in the past was the center of great commerce. It made a lot of people rich, and it's going to become that again. It tells us in Revelation 18, starting in verse 6, It says, render to her just as she rendered to you and repay her double according to her works in the cup which she has mixed, mixed double for her. In the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in the same measure, give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as queen and am no widow and will not see sorrow. Therefore, her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she'll be utterly burned with fire. For strong is the Lord God who judges her. In verse 6, this is still the voice from heaven calling on God to reward Babylon just as she rewarded the people of God. It's the idea here that God's divine justice owes Babylon a payment because of the enormity of her sin. Repay her double according to her works. Mix a double dose for her. The cup of her iniquity, which Babylon filled, should be filled twice with the measure of her judgment. There will be no mercy for the sins of Babylon. Verse 7, she glorified herself, lived in luxury. So give her some torment, give her sorrow. 
For she says in her heart, I sit as queen and am no widow and will not see sorrow. This is wishful thinking. The people of Babylon are going to boast and her willful sin against God is going to be rewarded with torment and sorrow, which is why verse 8 tells us that Babylon is going to be rewarded by destruction. It's going to be rewarded by plagues and death and mourning and famine. And it's going to be utterly burned with fire. For strong is the Lord who judges her. Sudden destruction is going to come upon Babylon. The strength of man, the strength of Babylon is nothing compared to the power of God. You know, wealth brings with it such a false sense of security. You know, we, we pile up our bank accounts and we get bigger houses and we get bigger cars and we just think we're safe, we think we're secure, but it's just a false sense of security. Her claim to not being a widow here is because this city will be in bed with the kings of the earth. You know, Babylon fell in, in Daniel 5. At the same hour, the finger traced its condemning words on the wall. And when it's time for God's judgment again, her plagues will come in one day, the text says, quickly, meaning quickly. Despite her boasts, Babylon is going to fall. Suddenly and unexpectedly, she will be destroyed. One day she will boast about her wealth. The next day she's burning. That is, that is what comes when people make money and power their God like Babylon. Entire empires come crashing down at a time they least expect it. Letting the words of Proverbs 16, 18 ring true. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. To help us understand the wealth that we have, let me tell you that in order for us to live like billions of people around the world today in true poverty, we would need to change our lives a little bit. Here's what we'd have to do if we wanted to live like billions of people in the world today. We would need to start by taking the furniture out of our homes. So I'm sorry, but your beds are gone, your chairs are gone, your tables are gone, your TVs are gone. You can have a few old blankets. You can have a kitchen table and a wooden chair. But for clothes, ladies, you might have an old dress. That's all you're going to have. Men, you might have an old pair of pants and an old shirt. Each head of the family has a pair of shoes, but none for the wife, none for the children. No appliances in the kitchen. You have a box of matches, a small bag of flour, some sugar, some salt, a few moldy potatoes. Those moldy potatoes, that's going to be tonight's meal, along with a handful of onions and a dish, a dish full of dried beans. You have no running water. You have no electricity. You don't even have the house that you're in right now. Take the house you got right now. You live in nothing more than the, the something the size of a shed with your family. And you may be able to read, and there might be a radio in your shanty town, but there's no post office, and there's no firemen. There's a school, but it's three miles away. It's only two rooms, no doctors or hospitals close by. There's a clinic 10 miles away with a midwife that can be reached by bicycle if you're fortunate enough to own one. We are absolutely the richest Christians in history. Do you think that bears some responsibility? We are the richest Christians in all of history. And we are probably also the greediest. And that means the work of Jesus Christ suffers because of us. One billion people in the world right now do not have access to clean water. Every seven seconds somewhere in the world, a child under the age of five dies of hunger. 
and we throw away 14% of our food. 40% of the people in the world lack basic sanitation. 1.6 billion people in the world have no electricity. Nearly 1 billion people in the world cannot read or even sign their name. Most of the people in the world do not own a car, and we spend more money on trash bags than half the world spends on everything that they buy in an entire year. I wonder often what the work of Christ would look like if we came out and lived separate. If we came out and lived like Christ wanted us to live instead of living like Babylon. Because that's what I see in the church today. Learning to do with less so that we can be a blessing instead of always craving, always wanting more, more, more. It would be staggering to see the impact for Christ if everyone who professed Jesus Christ put him first in his work instead of our greed, instead of ourselves. Verses 9 and 10. It says, The kings of the earth who committed fornication and live luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. The kings of the earth will lament the destruction of Babylon. The capital city will be burned. Now, this is the capital city of the world empire, and I believe that this is the actual city of Babylon itself, rebuilt to rule the world. Now, I don't just sit up here and guess. I'm not just giving you opinions. I base this on scripture because some of the prophecies of Babylon in the Old Testament have never been fulfilled. Isaiah 13 says that Babylon was to be completely destroyed and never inhabited again. We also find this in Jeremiah 51. But Babylon as a city was not destroyed until hundreds of years after the fall of the empire. Babylon, the first time, the city rotted away. Not a swift and sudden destruction as predicted in the word of God. These prophecies of the Old Testament have not been fulfilled. Jeremiah 51.8 and Revelation 18, they both speak of a sudden, quick, and fall of Babylon, which is not what happened with ancient Babylon. And let me show you the context of Isaiah 13, which is describing the fall of Babylon. And you tell me when you look at the context if this was already fulfilled, because I don't think for a second it was. Look at what verse 6 says in Isaiah 13. It says, Well, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. And again, starting in verse 9 of Isaiah 13, it says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. I don't think that's been fulfilled. The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. And I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. This is the context of Isaiah 13. The destruction of Babylon is yet to come. And if you remember from the book of Daniel... At the height of his power, Nebuchadnezzar looked out over the city of Babylon. And what did he say at that time? He said this. He says, is this not great Babylon that I've built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? That was Nebuchadnezzar. And as soon as he said it, what happened to him? 
Do you remember? What happened? The kingdom was taken away from him. And I think this is going to happen again. Babylon will be rebuilt and destroyed at the end of the tribulation. You know, the world has always had plans for Babylon. Napoleon, he planned to rebuild the city. The German Kaiser, the German Kaiser back in the early 1900s, he wanted to build a railroad to the, to the land close by it. Russia has had plans for Babylon. Saddam Hussein started to rebuild Babylon. And with modern construction, it can be rebuilt quickly and it can be larger than ever before. And the kings of the earth will marvel at the destruction of the capital of this world empire. They will be in fear. They will distance themselves, it says, so they don't meet the same judgment. The world government leaders are going to mourn when they see the collapse of the very city that enabled them to live in power and luxury. And fire will be the main cause of her destruction. It says first that the Kings will mourn, the ruling class, then the middle class, and the merchants will mourn. Verse 11 in your text says, And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise anymore. Merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen and purple, silk and scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of most precious wood, bronze, iron and marble, and cinnamon and incense, fragrant oil and frankincense, wine and oil, fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, what does this last part say? And bodies and the souls of men. Now, the overall point of this text is to tell us that they won't be able to buy their merchandise anymore. They won't be able to sell their merchandise anymore. They will weep at the destruction of Babylon because of the loss of the trade with the city. Precious stones, costly metal, expensive fabrics, the nice things that people put in their homes, precious wood, ivory, brass, iron, marble. These are the items that were items of wealth in the ancient world. Citron wood, this comes from Cyprus. It's a fragrant wood that was used for furniture in Roman times. Expensive perfumes, spices, an abundance of food, cattle, sheep, horses, and chariots. And notice the end of verse 13, the bodies and souls of men. Why is that there? It's the slaves. It's a reference to the slaves that will be bought and sold at Babylon. And the end of the world is at hand. And the merchants of the earth, think of this, the end of the world is at hand and the merchants of the earth, all they can think about is the loss of their ability to make money. That is the heart of a godless man. Pick it up with verse 14. The fruit that your soul longed for has gone from you, and all the things which are rich and splendid have gone from you, and you shall find them no more at all. The merchants of these things who became rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, for in one hour such great riches came to nothing. First, it was the kings of the earth standing at a distance, mourning over the destruction of Babylon. Now it's the merchants of the earth crying out, not wanting to go near for fear that they're going to be caught up in her torment. And again, the riches of the city described as fine linen, purple, scarlet, gold, precious stones, pearls. It's all going to be brought to nothing. They will cry because their source of income is absolutely gone. It is nothing but selfishness. It's nothing but greed. 
But also in verse 14, the things which are rich and splendid have gone from you and you shall find them no more at all. Now, the Greek clause here is that these things would never return. When the money is gone, the ruling class mourns. The middle class mourns. And even the common workers, the sailors and seamen who carried the goods, they will mourn. And then starting in the second half of verse 17, watch what it says. Every shipmaster, all who travel by ship, sailors, and as many as trade on the sea, stood at a distance and cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What is like this great city? They threw dust on their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth. For in one hour she's made desolate. Those in the ships at sea stay at a safe distance. They cry out, What is like this great city? The ships entering the Persian Gulf at this time stand back, staying safe at a safe distance, stay out at sea. And in an expression of their grief, they cast dust on their heads and join the other merchants in weeping and in wailing. But they cry out because they'd become rich because of this city, Babylon. You know, you don't have to be rich to love money. You really don't. You don't have to be rich to love money. Even poor people can love money. They can live their lives chasing after it and end miserable just like the rich. It's a, it's a thing for all classes of people. Money never makes anyone happy, but it often makes many people miserable. And it was Christ who said this. He said, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, when I hear Christians talk about money, 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 money all the time, it tells me right away that it's a mark of spiritual immaturity. It's a mark of spiritual immaturity because Scripture says that's where their heart is. Here's a name from history that you know, Henry Ford. He, he loved the ordinary people, and they, they loved him back. By 1920, half of all cars on the United States roads were Fords. And in that day, many people still had the old school values where they believed in delayed gratification and self-control. But Ford came in with a different attitude. He believed that money existed for spending and that workers should use their income to buy products and that those products would improve their lives. Specifically, he wanted him to buy his Model T Ford. Now, he was seen as a hero for making it possible for the average family to own a car. And so I don't know why people do this, but they always do this. Whenever someone makes it financially, people think they're an expert on everything. Steve Jobs was elevated as a hero. The guy was kind of weird. He was really weird. This happens. But they did the same thing to Henry Ford. They sought out his opinion for every area of life. World peace, marriage advice, child care, just everything because he knew how to make a car. People idolized Ford so much that eventually he convinced himself that he really was that great, that he was infallible. And he made some very destructive and bad decisions. The adoration blinded him to his own hypocrisy. He, he preached family values when he went around traveling, speaking in public. He preached family values, but he had a mistress on the side. And it drove him to ruthlessly undercut his only child, Edsel Ford, had every chance that he had. 
Edsel was a very gentle man, and his style and his superior education offended Henry. It offended him greatly. But Henry Ford, he did mourn with intense grief when his young son died. Henry Ford's last days continued to be very, very tragic. On a visit to the house where he had lived as a newlywed, he told his chauffeur, he said, I've got a lot of money, and I'd give every penny of it right now just to be here with Mrs. Ford. See, money never made anyone happy. You can look at someone like Henry Ford and say, wow, he was successful. He had it all. He died miserable. Money never made anyone happy. No matter how much you have, it disappears quickly. I don't care where you start at the top, it disappears quickly. Especially if you're not honoring God with how you live and how you use what he's given you. Perhaps your money problem, Christians, is more of a heart problem. You'll never get your money right until you first get your relationship with Jesus Christ, learning to trust him with your wallet. When money disappears, those who love it are depressed. So you know what the solution is? Don't fall in love with money. Don't fall in love with money. But instead, Christian, fall in love with the Lord. Let God consume your passions. Let Jesus Christ be the pursuit of your life. Because those who love the Lord rejoice even when the money is gone. Verse 20 in your text. It says, rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. Now, I think if we were with John on the island of Patmos when this was first being recorded and written down, or suffering with any of the saints around the world right now, we would have a little better understanding of, of these verses. In contrast to the grief by the people of the world, those in heaven will be called upon to rejoice at Babylon's destruction. See, if you don't invest in this world, if you're not invested and so worried about everything you're trying to build up for yourself as a little kingdom in this world, you're not really going to mourn at its loss, are you? Babylon throughout her history has always mistreated God's people. She carried the Jews into captivity, and she will persecute the believers during the tribulation. You know, God's people are so often abused for the sake of power and money, so they will rejoice when the end of the tribulation is, is near. But we don't have to wait until then. God's people can rejoice today, no matter what you're going through. Our last chunk of text, starting in verse 21, it says this. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea. I wish I could see that. Saying, thus with violence, the great city of Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found anymore. The sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, and trumpeters shall not be heard in you anymore. No craftsman or any craft shall be found anymore, and the sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you anymore. The light of a lamp shall not shine in you anymore, and the voice of the bridegroom and the bride shall not be heard in you anymore. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, for by your sorcery all the nations were deceived, and in her was found the blood of prophets and saints, and of all who were slain on the earth." Now John sees a mighty angel throw a stone like a great millstone into the sea, representing the violent downfall of this city. These millstones were thousands of pounds, thousands of pounds, like a stone cast into the sea. Babylon will be found no more. Everything that characterized the sound and life of the city is going to be gone. The sound of music, 
No craftsman, no sound of millstone grinding out the grain. The light of the lamp has gone out. The city will be cold and dead. The silence of the city is a testimony of God's devastating judgment because she deceived the nations into thinking that joy and security and honor and the meaning of life come through the accumulation of wealth. Babylon will use her sorcery to seduce the nations to follow after her. This wicked and wealthy city will be so completely destroyed, nobody will be able to locate her again, just like Sodom and Gomorrah. See, that's what happens when men chase money. All of a sudden, the money's gone. The money disappears. It's always going to disappear. That's the plan. The wealth is gone. The riches are ruined. And the legacy is turned to ashes. Do you remember back in history, in September of 1929, the experts were predicting years of economic prosperity. Oh, it was going to be glorious. An economic professor at Yale University said at the time, quote, stock prices have reached what looks like a permanently high plateau. Well, you know what happened. Stock market crashed the very next month in October of 1929 and plunged our, our country into the Great Depression. Material wealth is fleeting. It's fleeting. It never lasts. It's not worth chasing after, which is why we read this in Proverbs 23. Here's your verse. Look at this. It says, do not overwork to be rich because of your own understanding. Cease. In other words, stop it. Just stop. Will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away like an eagle toward heaven. Former pastor Bob Record wrote about the time he suffered a pretty bad injury, a cervical spinal injury. And he said that the pain was so extreme, the hospital staff couldn't even get him into the MRI until they had sedated him. And the MRI showed significant damage at three major points in the neck. And there was no way that he was going to avoid surgery. And the injured nerve bundles were all swollen up. So the only way that Bob could relieve the pain was to use a strong prescription narcotic and to sit there and lie on bags of ice. What little sleep he was able to get came only by sitting in a reclining chair. And two days after the injury, Bob lost 80% of the strength in his left arm. Three fingers in his hand lost all feeling, and even the slightest movement would hurt. It would send waves of pain down his left side. So doctors told him he had to stop completely, just stop working for a long time and wear a neck brace 24 hours a day. That's the worst part, 24 hours a day for five weeks straight. Well, one day, Bob took a big adventure with his neck brace on. He found himself sitting on a screened-in porch behind his home, and it was a cold day, it was a windy day, it was a gray day, not a very beautiful day. But he was committed to being outside for just a change of scenery, just that little bit of change of scenery. And suddenly this bird landed on the railing, and he began to sing. And on that cold and rainy day, Bob was a little frustrated that any creature under heaven had a right to sing. And he wanted to shoot that bird, but he wasn't feeling good enough to get his gun. He still wanted to shoot it, but that bird just continued to sing. And Bob had no choice. He was stuck. He had to sit there and listen to the bird. Well, the next day, Bob was on the porch again, but this time it was bright and it was shiny, sunny out and beautiful and warm. And as he sat there, he was tempted to feel sorry for himself, but suddenly that bird, that, that bird returned and it started to sing again. Bob was still wishing he had a shotgun. 
But then an amazing truth, a very simple truth, but an amazing truth hit him head on. See, the bird sang in the cold, cold rain, and the bird sang in the warmth of the sun. And his song was not altered by the outward circumstances, but it was held constant by an internal condition. Bob then realized that he had the same choice. He could let the external circumstances of life mold his attitude, or he could realize that in Jesus Christ, Christians, we have something to sing about. Find the joy that rises above, no matter what you're facing. I'm sure all of us are facing different things in different times and different places in our lives right now. But you can rejoice because you don't need a pile of money to be happy. You just need the Lord Jesus Christ. If your love is money, it will disappear and you're going to be depressed. If that's your focus, prepare to be depressed. If your love is the Lord Jesus Christ, you can rejoice even when the money's gone. So rejoice at the righteous judgments of our God. Make him the focus of our lives. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and let him take care of our needs. Come out of that Babylonian mindset because that mindset is here today now. Don't let it enslave you. Come out of the world system. Come out of the pursuit of money and power so you don't have to fall into all that sin and all that ruin. And if Christ is first in your life, you can walk in his joy even when everything else is lost. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return.